everyone. It's Brad Thomas with iReit, and I'm back again with another CEO roundtable interview. Uh, today, I'm uh, happy and honored and pleased to, uh, to be with uh, Mike Shaw. Mike is the CEO of Essex Property Trust. That ticker symbol is ESS. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us uh, back here uh, after the second quarter results. Hey, Brad, it's, it's great to be here with you. It's always a pleasure and uh, happy to talk about uh, the second quarter and what's going on at Essex. So thanks for having me. Great. Well, I just want to start maybe high level. Some of our audience may not be as familiar at, with, uh, with Essex um, as we both are. And of course, you're just outside of LA. I'm in South Carolina. But, uh, but we know that Essex is a, uh, basically a sharpshooter focusing currently on the West Coast. Can you talk just high level about the composition of your portfolio just so the uh, first, -timer, first timers or newcomers might uh, not be familiar with your, your business model? Of, of course, Brad. Uh, yes, we operate uh, about 60,000, 62,000 apartment units in the seven major metros along the West Coast of uh, the United States. Uh, really, you know, Seattle is uh, about 10,000 units uh, in the Northern and Southern California. And we're an S&P 500 company. We went public in 1994 and have a pretty distinguished track record, which you've written about in the past. And uh, so I've personally been here for, you know, 30 something years and uh, seen a lot of things come and go. So uh, we try to focus on these markets because we think they're different. Uh, generally speaking, incomes, wages, et cetera, and uh, rents grow a little bit faster here. And uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss on, uh, on the call, there are definitely some unique challenges in these markets as well. So uh, is that good enough, Brad? Yeah, yeah, and I was actually gonna uh, maybe ask you another related question on that is uh, about Seattle. Uh, I know Seattle's been in the news quite a bit in terms of the protests and some of the political angst going on in, in that market. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about some of that volatility? Uh, obviously, I, all I can see is what, what the media reports and sometimes, you know, I don't know if it, you know, I haven't been there. So kind of tell us what's going on there in, in those markets. Yeah, you know, Seattle, like all of our markets, are places, a nice place to live. You know, people generally view it as a beautiful city and, uh, and an attractive environment overall. It has a very dynamic and growing job base, and in, which has included more and more of the technology companies that uh, look to Seattle as a lower cost uh, sort of hub for technology-related um, companies and, and therefore employees. And, you know, technology is really driven by companies that have aspirations that use technology and the number of people that are available within the market uh, that are, that provide those, those activities. So both Northern California and Seattle have that. And uh, so it's been, it's been a very good market for us. Uh, I think you're referring to the most recent, um, civil unrest in Seattle. And, uh, you know, fortunately, that's a very small part of, of Seattle. It's a place that they call the Autonomous Zone, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and, and CHOP is another acronym. Uh, so, and we actually had one property in that uh, area, and uh, I give our community manager credit up there for reaching out to the, the uh, protesters in, you know, sort of a positive way. And uh, so we had essentially no harm done, and uh, that was disbanded recently. So, um, 
you know, we, we just move forward there. But I don't want to get too focused on that because our portfolio is really throughout the, the entire Seattle metro, which is a large metro, you know, more than 3 million people. And uh, most of our portfolio actually is on what's called the east side of Seattle, which are the towns of Bellevue, uh, Issaquah, Redmond, et cetera. And, uh, and so we don't have, I would say, any huge concentrations of property. Again, our strategy is to go to the areas that support higher rent growth and then have a diversified portfolio in these major metros. So you know, we don't seek to have a huge concentration in downtown Seattle uh, or any other metro, but rather have a you know a variety of properties ranging from let's say B minus to A quality properties throughout one of these large metro areas. So that's the basic strategy. And you know Seattle has done well this year. Uh, in the first quarter, obviously pre-pandemic, uh, it led our portfolio with 4.7 percent same property revenue growth, uh, you know, versus the total portfolio, which was at 3.2% in Q1. And since the pandemic, it remains one of the strongest parts of our portfolio. And uh, so we're, you know, we're still ha very happy with Seattle. And I, I, well, I guess I would draw attention to the tech industries, which again, a lot of the tech companies are expanding in Seattle, obviously you have Amazon and Microsoft that are in the, that are headquartered in the Seattle area. And both of them, you know, because of cloud computing with Microsoft and certainly Amazon's um, online uh, distribution and sales capabilities are amazing. So those are probably companies that are actually benefited by the pandemic ultimately. And, uh, you know, even though they've slowed down a bit, I think that they will come, you know, roaring back and, uh, and do very well. So. Overall, you know, we found Seattle to be a very good market for us. We've been there for a long time. We've grown our portfolio there. And, uh, you know, I think another key to this market is understanding, you know, all the sub-markets and it's really in the details. And, uh, you know, it's a market that we understand very, very well. Sure. Well, recently uh, I wrote an article on Essex and highlighted, I guess, uh, or, or reference, I should say, uh, the you know LA market and specifically the entertainment industry, which appears to be clawing you know clawing back um, somewhat. Uh, we've got the Wheel of Fortune, I think, is uh, is back back uh, back filming now. But some of those some of those uh, I think my wife's one of my wife's uh, TV shows is not uh, coming back. So I'm just curious, how do you see that entertainment uh, sector within the uh, LA market? Yeah, you know, I made uh, comments on our recent uh, Q2 call about LA and the entertainment business. And you're right, uh, it was it was shut down. It's a it's a very large part of Los Angeles, especially you know that the Hollywood uh, and um, uh, that Mid Wilshire area, and uh, it it uh, has caused you know pretty significant dislocation in that market. Um, I think I said on the call that unemployment rate in LA was 19 and a half percent. So that is an extraordinary number. And, uh, and it's, I think, partially or big part of that is attributable to uh, the entertainment business and all the gig workers that that, that brings in, which of course all have, have probably gone home or, or left the area. So it has been an area that, you know, over the long haul has actually been uh, one of the most consistent performers and we look at 
the tech markets is really adding a growth or, or alpha to the portfolio. And Southern California is sort of the, um, you know, more like the United States in terms of more diversified, et cetera. And, uh, you know, this time the pandemic has really uh, tested those, um, those expectations because Seattle, I'm sorry, LA is one of the most hard hit of any of our submarkets within our portfolio. So, uh, but as you say, demand for content isn't going away. And in fact, it's probably going to be pushed harder as a result of the pandemic and people staying at home and wanting content. It has now been shut down and it was a hard shutdown. Uh, I've, I have spent some time looking at it and the complications of trying to film things on a, on a crowded set amid a pandemic is a big obstacle. And so um, it was shut down. It actually just recently opened up again. And as you point out, and I made some comments on the conference call that uh, it is starting to open up. The Screen Actors Guild and some of the, uh, some of the other organizations have developed a, a process for filming amid COVID. And so, as you point out, it's coming back, but it's likely to be a slow step-by-step -step process uh, from here on out. Uh, you know, again, though, I mean, we have to look at this, I think, somewhat long-term because if, you're, if you have uh, industries that are not going away, they're going to come back. And again, it seems like when I look at technology, I'm surprised at how challenged it's, it's become in the tech markets. Um, but at the same time, I feel very comfortable and confident that they will come back, as I do with LA and certainly the entertainment business. Yeah, Mike, I know we discussed this on the last call, you know, just the fact that this, this, you know, this pandemic is certainly something that nobody has prepared for. Certainly, I would describe a black swan event. But now that we're in it, what, is, uh, what, have, what steps have uh, Essex and your company done to stress test the portfolio in terms of demand uh, and what you're seeing out there overall? Well, uh, you know, quite a lot, actually, Brad. So, uh, you know, our board is, is a pretty engaged board. And uh, so we are constantly sending them updates on what's going on with the portfolio uh, between, you know, regularly scheduled board meetings. And um, so we have spent a fair amount of time stress testing the company. Initially, we didn't know what we were comparing it to because no one's seen anything quite like this pandemic. And, uh, you know, obviously we had... Uh, I think uh, four, about 14% job loss uh, in our markets uh, in April, and that has improved to about 10% by June. So pretty significant improvement there, but again, different from most, uh, most other recessionary periods. So, uh, so what we did with our board initially, and you know, this will evolve over time, is we compared ourselves to where we were in the financial crisis and looked at, okay, how did, how did we perform there? What are the balance sheet metrics? Uh, what do operations look like? How did we cover the dividend? And, and so we spent you know, a fair amount of time doing that and talking to them. Now in the financial crisis, market rents over a couple of years declined 15%. Our same store revenues declined about 3% in each year in 2009 and 2010. So again, you know, your reported results never catch up to market rents because market rents decline and then they recover 
and you have leases in place that you know buffer that that um, uh, those changes. So, so that's what happened. And then, uh, so we compare our balance sheet. Then, you know, having some idea of what could happen to market rents, uh, evaluate our balance sheet versus a financial crisis, and we are in very much better condition now. And I'll, let me throw out a couple things that will that will demonstrate that leverage. And to be simple, just on a percentage of total market cap was about 35% in the second quarter of 2008. And uh, that compares to about 29% last quarter. Average interest rate on our debt in the second quarter of 2008 was 5.4%. And it's now about 3.4% last quarter. Obviously, you know, when you look at debt to EBITDA, it does, that doesn't come into play. But when you're talking about dividend coverage, that's a that's a major factor in dividend coverage because our our um, coverage ratios are so much different given the lower debt costs then versus now. Back then, we were mostly uh, used secured debt, and so now uh, most of our debt is unsecured. Only about five percent of it is uh, is secured. And finally, we went into this um, this period, you know, and again, none of us foresaw a pandemic on the horizon, but we just happened to be in very good shape in terms of our commitment. So we have about 1.4 billion in liquidity, and that includes our 1.2 billion dollar unsecured line of credit, uh, many times what we had before. And as we look at our forward commitments to fund, you know, development pipelines, uh, and um, uh, you know, other commitments were fully matched with property sales that we announced last quarter. So I think we're in extraordinarily good shape at this point in time. Yeah. So in terms of your, your liquidity um, currently, I mean, what, what is, how do you uh, compare today in terms of that overall liquidity in, after the second quarter? Uh, you mean compared to financial crisis? Yes. Or, or just or how you've, since we entered the crisis, uh, how have you kind of, you know, uh, solidified your liquidity position uh, go going into this cr current crisis? Well, all, all of those things, essentially cleaning up our line. Uh, you know, we're, we will, um, we just did a, a debt deal. Uh, we issued 600 million of um, 10 and 30 year paper, 300 million each. The 30 year unsecured bonds yield 2.66%. Uh, again, 300 million, and uh, we did a 10-year tranche, 300 million to yield 1.75%. You know, in effect, that will repay all of the maturities through late 2022. And again, it, even though we, we don't think that probably that's going to be an issue, trying to just take off the table some of those risks was our objective in this. And then obviously, you know, having much lower uh, financing costs going forward for a very long period is going to help core FFO again creating coverage for the dividend. So, so we, we've done that. But I, I guess more fundamentally, when you go back to selling, we sold three properties. I think we're the only ones that sold property amid this uh, amid the crisis. So these were actually contracted post COVID. We sold three of them at nearly uh, a small discount. Let's say representing the cash flow that was lost during the pandemic, uh, you know, higher vacancy, more delinquency, estimating that cost and taking that off the top of the price. So a small discount to, uh, to those asset values. And I think that's, 
that's important because you know rather than relying on your line of credit you're you're funding your match funding your obligations going forward and uh, when we look at uh, our forward commitments again to fund development it's very nominal you know we don't have a, a big development pipeline taking all the debt maturities off the table uh, so we're knocking them off you know one at a time and trying to create a very stable balance sheet because you know candidly we don't know the course of the virus uh, you know in the future and all of us hope and believe that uh, it will ultimately dissipate as a as a factor but uh, you know we don't know and so the thought was hey let's uh, out of an abundance of caution let's uh, take some of these commitments off the table and make sure that the company is uh, is well financed and you know I would say that hey if uh, if there's a vaccine or therapeutics continue to advance, et cetera, then uh, you know, we're still gonna benefit from much lower interest costs going forward for a long period of time. So uh, it seems like somewhat of a win-win type situation. Right. So I wanna ask you a little bit about you know, the, the, the business model. I know you, you touched on this, I think, in the earnings call, the latest earnings call, and that is, uh, Diversification. I know you've really centered on this, you know, being this local sharpshooter on the West Coast, uh, where that, you know, that's always been a competitive advantage with the high barrier to entry, uh, you know, business model. You know, is that changed? Uh, is it as a result of COVID? And do you anticipate potentially looking, you know, outside of those core West Coast markets for other opportunities? It, it's a good question, and um, you know, we. Um, we go through a strategic planning process, which actually I'm right in the middle of, uh, as we speak, uh, my other job, uh, we go through with our board, uh, and this is in September and again in October, some of the key strategic issues that we, that we face and uh, you know, as, the, as the world evolves. And um, every year we have a list of potential other markets that we consider and uh, you know, we go through uh, sort of the same analysis that we go through with our 30 some odd submarkets on the West Coast that we're active in uh, with other major metros. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're looking for a few things. And it's interesting because if you boil down the United States into the things that really matter as it relates to being an a apartment company, you know, it's, it's all about wage growth. You know, you can't get higher rents if you don't have higher wages. And so that's a very important factor. It's about supply and demand. So on the demand side, it's about job growth and, uh, and, and having, um, having properties that are in places where people want to live, you know, good schools, low crime, uh, all, those, all those factors that, that go into that. And then finally, the you know, substitution effect has to be under control. So, you know, it can't be easy to transition from an apartment to a, a home. So in the areas that have very inexpensive single family homes, you know, effectively rents are capped because as soon as rents rise to a certain level, people make a different choice and go, well, I'll just buy a home. And, uh, you know, especially when, when uh, mortgage rates are where they currently are, you know, a lot of people are going to be um, you know, exiting apartments uh, to for sale housing, you know, that'll be less an issue probably on the West Coast than it's going to be uh, throughout the rest of the U.S. And so those are the basic ingredients. If you take those simple principles and you apply them more broadly across the U.S., you end up with not that many uh, major metro areas 
and uh, and you and you uh, narrow the scope pretty clearly, and then you, then it comes back to so more fundamental research. You know what have the long term uh, increases in rents look like over long periods of time, and why has that occurred? You know what are given each of those factors I just described, what's going on within these metros that that uh, cause their results to be the results over long periods of time. So that whole process is ongoing. We do it every year. We have for a long time. Uh, you know, it's interesting because this year, uh, in the middle of the strategic plan, the first whole section is COVID-related. It's all the different uh, you know, reactions that people have had and uh, you know, whether they're going to be temporary or permanent, to what extent that things are gonna truly change and how does this affect us going forward? So it's gonna be a very unique year for our strategic planning discussion. And we will once again, you know, go through other potential markets because I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, boards are gonna be more uh, interested in looking at diversification, uh, even though, you know, I would argue, I think uh, if you put California and Washington together, I think you have the fifth largest economy in the world so it's a big place and, you know, it's, it's 40 million people in California. And so, you know, I, I don't feel like we're, you know, a huge part of any, any market. And California is also unique in that it's not about a few large cities. It's really many small cities. So yes, LA is very, very large, for example. And so is San Diego as a city in San Jose. But uh, beyond that, there are many little cities that are, you know, their own discrete political units that, uh, you know, sort of buffer the effect to some extent. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, one of the things that is, is most interest to me, and I think a lot of my uh, uh, readers, subscribers, followers, uh, and all of those watching this video is, um, is the dividend and, and really the um, extraordinary dividend history of Essex, um, which has, I believe, is it 26 or 27? I can't remember, years in a row. Um, yes, 26, I believe. 26 years in a row. So, um, you know, dividend aristocrat in those terms. Um, and over the years, you've not only, you know, grown that dividend, I'm just looking now at the, you know, earnings or, or funds from operations performance going, you know, pretty far back uh, over the last decade, you know, you've had a some really nice, um, you know, earnings growth. Obviously, 2020 being that outlier year with this pandemic, um, you're not going to, you know, obviously grow at the same rate we've we've seen the company grow over the last, you know, uh, really two decades. Um, but you know, consensus looks pretty positive as well for us. We we rely on our analysis, but also other other uh, uh, analysts. So, but I think I would argue that you know, this analyst, that would be me, is most interested in that dividend uh, because that's really the, the retail investor really resonates around that and really depends on that. Um, just like you depend on, you know, the rent checks to come in uh, every month. I know a, a lot of uh, REIT investors, certainly on our end, the, re, the, the true retail investors can appreciate that dividend being a significant part of that total return um, uh, process. So how would you, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess, discuss your dividend today in terms of the safety of that dividend and taking that 26-year track record uh, into account? Yeah, you know, uh, we often 
discuss the dividend and you know really priorities and and I guess I would uh, say that you don't get to be a dividend aristocrat unless it's a major priority that's bought into by you know the board the senior leadership team and uh, you know hopefully on you know in our discussion uh, we've demonstrated a lot of the things that we've done sort of proactively to make sure that the dividend is safe because as you as you well know and I'm a, a student of your writings uh, and hey, it's, it's important uh, to the industry, it's important to the company, and it's important to the shareholders for sure. So we 100% agree with that. And um, so I think that balance sheet and you know, the, basic, um, the basic operation of the company and the management team, having all, that, all those people aligned and the basic concept of the company aligned around dividend safety is a super important thing. So I would, you know, we look at this often and uh, you know, we're generally housing, again, is a basic human need. And therefore it's, I think, inherently less risky than some of the other property types. I think that gives us somewhat of an advantage. And yes, that doesn't mean that we don't go, we don't suffer period in periods of uh, recession and uh, other dislocations like the pandemic, which, you know, in effect is leading to a recession. But we try to, manage that and build around it by using the balance sheet. So I guess, so we talked about the balance sheet and compared it to the financial crisis. So I won't go back to that again, but maybe it would help just to go through maybe the income statement and just look at, look at how that, that looks. And um, so in the first quarter, so pre-COVID, and we've withdrawn guidance for the rest of the year because there's so many facets of this pandemic that we, we've never seen and therefore we can't anticipate which includes, you know, governmental uh, actions, you know, anti-eviction ordinances that are evolving, constantly changing, you know, vaccines and stuff like that, which we have no ability to, to um, you know, judge what's going to happen and foresee the future. So, so we withdrew guidance, but let me go back to Q1. So we generated $3.48 in core FFO. We annualize that, it's about $14 and uh, uh, in FFO. So, our dividend is about $8.31. We're about 59% of the $14. We've been through lots of recessions and lots of different things. You know, the, I've been here since 1986. So uh, we saw the SNLs implode in the early 90s. We saw the uh, dot-com uh, boom bust period. Uh, we saw the financial crisis. So we've been through a lot of things. There is nothing out there that would be so substantial that it would impact the dividend in our opinion. I mean, again, you would have to believe that people just exit California uh, in mass in order for that to happen. And the reality is people are here for a reason. It's a good place to live for the most part. And, uh, you know, definitely it has its challenges, but, uh, you know, overall people are here for a reason and uh, the tech companies aren't going away. You don't build, uh, you know, a spaceship type campus in Cupertino like Apple did and, uh, and expect to move it anytime soon. And it's not, so that's going to anchor a lot of these tech companies and uh, the, the entire tech community is a unique phenomena into itself. So I just, you know, I feel like the dividend is very safe. I feel like we have done several things, you know, selling assets to fund our commitments, getting our debt maturities uh, off, taking them off the shelf, keeping our commitments low in general. 
it's hard to imagine that the dividend is uh, at risk at any level. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, I, I know another one of your uh, not direct peers, but uh, certainly dividend uh, growth peers, uh, uh, Federal Realty, uh, Dividend King, over 50 years of, of dividend growth, just increased their dividend. And, um, you know, I've said this a lot, the safest dividend is the one that's just been raised. And that's a pretty meaningful word just to have that dividend growth, even if it's 1% uh, or you know, whatever modest amount. Um, the, other, the, other, the other line I like using a lot is a Howard Marks line, which is uh, managing risk is what separates the best, you know, separates the worst from the best. And in terms of managing risk, I think we've covered a lot of this, but I, I want to ask you one last question, which I've asked you this before on other calls, but I've got a lot, people, you know, always look out, what is that, what's the next black swan? And I know you've addressed this, obviously, and that's the earthquakes. And we just had a 5.5 earthquake here in South Carolina on Sunday. Uh, I, I slept right through it. Uh, that's pretty typical of me, but my kids, you know, felt it. But what's the, what's the way that, you know, your company kind of manages for that, that other next risk that obviously is, is uh, you're in that earthquake zone area? Yeah. Yes, you know, we, we are. And, um, you know, again, we haven't seen that black swan event. We've been through obviously many earthquakes and uh, we've had maybe a broken window. And I, and I think part of that is because we do a lot of due diligence and we've, you know, we've killed acquisition and development deals because of proximity defaults and that type of thing. So we try to take it holistically. And then, you know, on the, on the building set, you know, the higher the density is, the, the higher the the building is uh, the more earthquake risk. So we carry uh, about $200 million of earthquake insurance on, on those properties, uh, recognizing that uh, go through this other process of plotting all the properties on the various fault lines and try to figure out where your maximum probable loss would occur. And then we buy insurance around that. So that's how we approach it. And uh, I think it's an, a thoughtful uh, process. Uh, obviously, I gave a vast oversimplification of how we approach it, but uh, those are the nuts and bolts. Great. Well, Mike, again, I want to thank you again. Uh, obviously, shares are still on sale. Uh, we're, we're definitely, you know, pounding the table as well. We see that opportunity. Fundamentals uh, really speak volumes for the deep value of Essex Property Trust, and a great job through, through this uh, pandemic, and I really appreciate your your time uh, for this for this call, and I uh, wish you all the best. Thanks, Brad. Hey, my pleasure. Look forward to seeing you soon. You too. Thank you.